Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. Okay, so I want to end this morning the, the, the series I've been doing since the beginning of the year that I've entitled Being Built Together, really just, I've just plagiarized Paul's uh, language for this series, where he talks about the fact that we are being built together. If you're going to plagiarize, plagiarize somebody good. And they don't get much better than Paul, right? So since the beginning of the year, we've been uh, thinking about this idea that we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. And that phrase alone is an awesome thing to think about. That we and every assembly, every group, every community of God's people, every local church is an expression of the big church, of God's people, universal as it were, and we're all being built together by God to become a dwelling place in which he lives by the Spirit. That is a mind-blowing reality when you think about that. Which is why I said early on in this series, we're not a religious club, neither is any gathering of the Lord's people. We are a corporate temple in which God is residing and living and wants to do so. So we've committed and we've considered just to kind of rehearse where we've come from in case you're here this morning and you haven't been a part uh, of the series or you've missed some of them. We started off considering what does it mean to be built together? And what does that look like? This morning, I want to finish this uh, short series by looking at some, and we're going to look at other truths, by the way, over the months to come related to this series. So I'm not just going to take a sharp right-hand turn here and go off into something else. What we do in the in weeks and months to come are going to be related to this reality that we're being built together. But as a series proper, I'm going to end it today. But what I want to do is... Uh, do something a little bit different this morning. The last three weeks, we have, in a sense, been looking at what it means to be built together from 3,000 feet. We've been looking at it in the local church. What does that really mean? What does it look like? And how is it expressed when it's lived out? So that's kind of like a a 3,000-foot view of what it means to be built together. This morning, I want to take that up to like 30,000 feet, and I want to look at the big picture of what this being built together is unto. What is the future destiny of those people that are being built together? What does that temple that rises in the Lord, as Paul describes it, that group of people that are being built into that place where God dwells, what is that ultimately going to look like? Because we aren't just going to be the product of what we are now. There's something that God is doing Somewhere he is leading us, a destiny that God has marked out for us. So we're going to lift our eyes this morning from the present to the future. Not that the future doesn't have an impact on the present. It does. And if you understand the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is all about the present and the future and how the future informs the present and the way that we live in it. But I want to lift our eyes to the future this morning and get a picture of what it is that God is building us unto. And this picture of God's people being built together in the church, 
like everything else in the kingdom of God, has both those components to it, the present and the future. It's about now and it's about what's not yet. And those two things are held in tension in the reality of the kingdom, but never in contradiction. They reinforce one another. So the picture of God's people in the book of Hebrews, it says this, we have this hope, we have this hope, which can be defined as our certain inheritance in the unchanging promise and purpose of God as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So that parenthesis I've put in there, but in the text itself it says, we have this hope, and that word hope actually means a certain inheritance in the unchanging promise and purpose of God. And we have that as believers as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. You know, an anchor is attached to a boat or a ship, and when that anchor is laid down, it holds that thing in place, keeps it from being tossed hither and hither and wherever. <laughs> hither and yon, I don't know, whatever. You get the point. But, but the writer of Hebrews, the author says, we have this, this hope is an anchor for us, so we're not tossed around. We don't lose our spiritual moorings. We're anchored in to the promise and purpose of God. And then in, in, uh, in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, the same author says, Now faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. As Christians, we're not going through life stumbling in the dark, wishing something might happen. We have hope, and biblically that means we have certitude. And it's expressed in faith being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we can't see naturally. So what then is the future hope of God's household, of God's people, of this temple and all temples where God lives? Because that's where he lives now, amongst his people. And I've mentioned that a number of times over the last couple of weeks. What is the future for this house that God is building, that God is constructing of his people? Scripture describes hope, as I've said, in terms of certainty. There are certain realities that the Scripture talks about that are certain for the people of God, that are certain for you and me and everyone that names the name of Jesus. So what are those present and future realities that we can be certain of this morning? I just want to mention a few of them to you. This is what God is building. This is what we are becoming. First, a resurrected people. We are becoming, remember this is big picture here now that I'm talking about. The purpose and destiny of the people of God of which we are a part is God is building us to become a resurrected people. Paul tells us what this hope related to resurrection looks like in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Now, I'm going to go, I'm going to be in a bunch of different scriptures this morning. I don't have one core principle text, which I usually do. I'm going to be going in, in various directions. But I want you to see what the, the full counsel of God in the New Testament says about where we're going and what God is doing by building us together. We are first going to be a resurrected people. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Fall asleep is a euphemism for death here. 
or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Notice that at the beginning. Paul says, we don't want you to be like that. We don't want you to be ignorant like the rest of men who grieve and have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Who's going to rise first? The dead in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, and wherever there's a therefore in Scripture, you ask, what's it there for, right? (laughs) Therefore, in light of everything I've just said, Paul says, encourage each other with these words. Do something, Paul says, with what I've just told you. And the something I want you to do is to encourage one another. Now here, let me just put this in context. Paul is writing to a church with new believers who are facing pretty stiff persecution. With little external support. And he's writing a letter to them in real time to encourage them about the reality that they're facing. And two of his primary aims in this letter, and this is all I want to say about the context, is to encourage these believers in the face of trials and to assure them of the future hope that is theirs in Christ. So that's his twofold purpose. One is to say, hey guys, I know you're going through a tough time, but I want to encourage you in the Lord. Even though the circumstances are hard, I want to encourage you this morning. And the other thing I want to do by way of that encouragement, is linked that to the hope that is yours in Christ. Because what's happening now is not the end of the story. There's a destiny that you have in Jesus, and I want to show you what that is, Paul is saying in this letter. He's telling these Christians at Thessalonica that they are, in fact, already a resurrected people because when Jesus rose from the dead, they were included in his resurrection. Now, I'm not smart enough to figure out exactly how that works. But I know what Paul says, too, in Romans as well, not just in Thessalonians, that that is true, that when Christ rose, we were, by faith, somehow included in his resurrection. So we are, in a sense, already positionally a resurrected people. We are a community of hope, triumphant in Jesus. That is what the church is this morning. We are already a community of hope, certain of the triumph and victory that is ours in Christ. He conquered death, right? That's what Jesus did. And you and I are going to conquer death in him. In him we too will rise. And in that resurrection we will conquer death. And we will be the manifestation and expression of what Jesus did when he rose bodily three days after his crucifixion. And that's true for all God's people. Paul would express that same hope to the Colossians when he said, 
He referred to this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory is our hope because of the reality of resurrection and because we are a resurrected people. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul said this, If Christ had not risen, our faith would be futile. But he has been raised from the dead. And Paul also said, in his resurrection, Jesus was a kind of first fruits, like the first fruits of the harvest that speak to what's coming. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't only that Jesus was conquering death, it was that Jesus was making a statement about all those that would be in him, also conquering death because of the power of his resurrection. That's our hope this morning. Resurrection for those who are asleep, as Paul describes them, and being caught up together to meet him in the air if we're alive when this all goes down. So like, either way, we're on a win here, right? If we're asleep, we're the first to rise. And if we're alive when he comes back, we get to meet him in the air. It really is a win-win in him when we think about resurrection. Well, because that's true, here's the application. And Paul already says what it is in that passage I read from Thessalonians. We should encourage each other. I mean, I think sometimes Christians kind of walk around, it's been my observation often, and they see the stuff and the brokenness of this world, and it's like kind of a woeful kind of mentality. No, we are a triumphant community in Christ. We have a destiny and a hope that goes far beyond the brokenness of this world, which, by the way, God is going to restore because he's going to restore all things in Christ. The truth is we're being built together to be a resurrected people, and that means to be a people triumphant over sin, sickness, and death, a people who will transcend the old order of things. A people who will enjoy being in God's glorious kingdom for all eternity. That's our hope. Now, this is who we are now by faith. We don't, wait and we don't have to wait until we see Jesus face to face for this to be something we can enter into experientially. By faith now, we are already that resurrected people. But then we will be a resurrected people in a completed sense through consummation because God will bring human history to a consummation and end point when he sends Jesus back again and thereafter he will usher in his full kingdom in a way that we do not yet see it. It is this hope that we're a resurrected people that should give us joy that enables us to encourage one another, whatever the circumstances. When Chad was praying during that transitionary prayer this morning between uh, worship and, and going into the announcements, and, and he was exhorting us to the fact that in prayer that whatever the circumstances is, our God is faithful. He's there for us. We need to encourage one another with that. We go through stuff in life. Stuff happens. And I did say stuff. Stuff happens, right? We need to encourage one another. That's part of being built together. We can't do this thing on our own. God didn't intend for us to.
Our hope is that we will be that triumphant resurrected people together that we are already now by faith. I want to give you an illustration just briefly from the Bible. Uh, It's in the book of Acts, and uh, I'm not going to read it to you this morning. Um, It's the story of Paul and Silas. And if you don't know this particular experience they went through, let me just briefly tell you. These guys are in Philippi, and they're doing the stuff of the kingdom, okay? And uh, basically, one day they're (laughs) they're, they're going to gather to pray with the Lord's people, and uh, they basically get set upon because they've set this woman who was demonized and was be a slave to, and was reading people's fortunes and making money for these p- people that are enslaved her. She had been set free, and people didn't like it because it hit their pocketbook. And uh, they were exploiting this woman uh, through divination and other things, uh, and Paul put an end to it. So here he, he and Silas are walking along, they're going to pray, and they get set upon, and basically they're brought before the authorities, and they get beaten severely with rods, it says, and then they're thrown in a dungeon, and not just a dungeon, but the inner part of the dungeon, and they're put in the stocks, and they're left there, beaten, bloodied, in the dark, with nothing. And that was, their, um, that was what they got for doing the stuff of the kingdom, and going to the house of God to pray and bless the Lord and worship. But in that place, they, if you read the story, they encouraged one another. When the circumstances around them gave them no bases for encouraging one another. I mean, that's the kind of thing that would cause me to be discouraged. I kind of say, where's God? I'm doing your stuff, setting people free. I'm, I'm looking to worship you. And pray and intercede and, and, and this is what I get? But that's not what they did. They encouraged one another. And I'll tell you a little bit more of what happened to them later this morning. But I just want you to see this morning that it's this reality that we are a resurrected people that should be the basis of our encouragement for one another. That the circumstances and the situation we are going through in the moment that God can extract from that and use uh, all kinds of uh, grace in our lives to bless us, to mature us, to advance us. We go through trials, and Peter says, don't think it's a strange thing when that happens. It's not strange. It's part of the process. But at the same time, that is not the end game. We're headed somewhere, and that somewhere we're headed to is being a triumphant community that's going to Be a part of God's new order. The second thing I want you to see this big picture is that we are a redeemed people. We sang about this this morning. I even mentioned it briefly when we shared communion. We get a picture in this future dimension of the people of God from John in in his apocalypse or what we call revelation uh, of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible. And in that picture, interestingly, John doesn't, Describe Jesus as a returning king commanding obedience, but as a lamb slain calling forth worship. It's interesting, and this is what he says in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll. This declaration is of Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood, with your blood, you purchased. And men here is used 
you know, in a generic sense, it's referring to humanity, men and women. You purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them be a kingdom and priests to serve God, and they will reign on the earth. This is part of our destiny here. We have been purchased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. From every language, people, and nation on the face of this earth. And we are being built together to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. And we will reign on the earth. John's telling us through this vision of Jesus as a lamb slain. That we're not just, as Paul describes us, um, a resurrected people and a community triumphant in Jesus. We're a redeemed people and a community of hope purchased by Jesus. The words, with your blood, you purchased men for God, speaks to the awesome reality that Jesus has brought us back to God, for God, with the blood that he shared at Calvary. You know, the word redemption just means to buy back. It means to buy back. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed. but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or defect. We were not purchased with perishable things. You know, this world puts so much emphasis on the value of gold and silver, you know, material wealth, right? That stuff's all perishable. You don't come into the world with any of it. Scripture says elsewhere, I'm paraphrasing, and you ain't gonna take it with you. The only thing that could purchase us to God was the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. The blood of Christ was the only acceptable price for our redemption. And if you're here this morning, you've never put your faith in Jesus, you need to know that this is the truth. That it's only the shed blood of Jesus Christ that can purchase you back to God so that you can be reconciled to your creator God who's also your redeemer and have a relationship with him. And Jesus made that possible. And only Jesus can and did make that possible for us. As the perfect lamb of God, he was worthy to pay the price. And in doing that, he purchased us back to God forever. Not for a season, forever. We are truly, as the people of God, a redeemed people. And it doesn't matter what our ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what language we speak. It doesn't matter from which nationality we come. We are all brought into the unified place of being a redeemed, purchased people because of the shed blood of Jesus. We belong to his kingdom, and as such, we will reign together with our King Jesus. That's the promise here in the book of Revelation. By his death and resurrection, he established his church as a kingdom of priests to serve God. You may not have thought of yourself that way before. You are a priest and part of a kingdom of priests 
for the purpose of serving your God. This is why worship is at the heart of who God has called us to be and made us to be, corporately and personally. Paul says this, writing to the Romans, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. These are words of redemption. You were bought, bought back. You're not your own anymore. Therefore, honor God with your body. In Romans 12, 1, he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. The hope of redemption means we should worship God together. Now, let me unpack what I mean by that. Knowing that we've been purchased by Jesus with the shedding of his precious blood and that we now belong to him and are found in him should call forth in our lives a worship response. We are being built together as that kingdom of priests I just talked about to offer spiritual sacrifices to God and that is what we do when we worship him. We have a certain hope that we belong to him. If you're in Christ, you are his. Because he's done everything necessary to buy you back to God. Think about that this morning. We belong to God. We have been made priests to serve him. And we've been promised that we'll reign on the earth with him. That's the purpose for which we're being built together. So what happens now in the present and in the journey is inextricably linked to what happens in the future in our destiny in Christ. You can't separate those two things ultimately. They are interconnected. Our response to that reality this morning should be one of worship as a redeemed people. This is a response recorded by John. I'm going to read you another passage of Scripture here. Of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, these characters are in this vision. And they encircle the Lamb who's on the center of the throne. This is the picture that John is getting. Now, this is this imagery, heavy imagery uh, in the language that John's using. But this is what he describes, that there's a lamb at the center of this throne. And encircled around this lamb are these 24 elders and these four weird living creatures. And they're singing a new song, John says. And this is the song that they're singing. This is what they declare about Jesus who is worthy alone to redeem. They say this, Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. I can't hardly read this stuff. I was reading it this week. Look, a hair standing up on the back of my neck. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice sang. They weren't whispering this. They were letting this out. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, the entire cosmic order, singing to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise, and honor, and glory, and power, forever and ever. The four living creatures said, 
Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a picture this is. We are a redeemed people who have been brought back to God, actually by God, for the purpose of being built together to be the people of God. And our response to that should be one of worship. And doing so now is a part of who we will be then. Let's be, as a church, a worshiping community. Let each of our lives be lives of worship, lives where all that we do in life, from our triumphs to our trials, from our seeking to our service, from our work to our play, let all of it be an expression of worship as unto the Lord. Because worship is more than just instrumentation and singing and voices, as huge a part of worship as that is. Our entire lives are supposed to be a response of worship to God. Everything we do, Paul says, we should do as unto the Lord. That means our work and our play. It means everything. And yes, coming together as the people of God, which we have a great opportunity to do next Saturday evening, live worship, be here and worship God together. Really, it's an opportunity to gather with the people of God and to offer up Christ-exalting worship to the one who is worthy, the one that we've just described there with John's words in Revelation chapter 5. We don't have to wait till we get around the throne. We are already those who have been given access by God into the throne room of His grace. Lastly, I want you to see this this morning. We're resurrected people. We're a redeemed people, but we're also a renewed people. This is the ultimate picture of what we are going to be forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let me read this to you. And again, this is from John in the book of Revelation. And this is what he says. This is right toward the end of the book. And then he says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Let me just park there for a moment. If you think that this is it, lift up your eyes through this revelation of John. This is what's coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, you notice every time these declarations are uh, given, they're preceded by, I heard a loud voice. I heard a loud voice from the throne uh, throne saying, now, now, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This old order is passing away. And it will pass away. He who sits on the throne said, I am making everything new. Everything. Then he said, write this down. 
For these words are trustworthy and they're true. This was some figment of John's imagination. This was a revelation of the ascended Christ and the destiny that God has for his people in him. The New Jerusalem speaks of the people of God in a perfected and eternal state. Adorned bride speaks of the church, purified and glorified, made ready for the bridegroom Christ. So God's people are a community of hope dwelling with Jesus. Dwelling with Jesus. This is a certain reality for us. One day we will be in the immediate presence of God as a people. We shall belong to him and he will belong to us in a completed and fully manifested way. Those things are already true now. But at this point, as described by John here, they will be completed and fully manifest. Not only shall we enjoy the immediate and intimate presence of God forever, we shall know the absence of something too. This is part of the promise of the kingdom. It's not just that we will be in God's presence and enjoying the intimacy of his presence in an immediate way for all eternity, which is awesome. I can't think of another way to describe that. But there's also an absence of something. There's an absence of tears and death, and mourning, and crying, and pain, gone. The old order of things will have passed away. The final restoration and renewal will mean no more suffering, sin, sickness, death. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus had already accomplished that in the outworking of God's plan that will be fully manifest at the appointed time. We should celebrate the coming king and his kingdom. Don't get preoccupied with the mess around us. Yes, we're supposed to be salt and light in the world that we're in. Absolutely. We're called to do that. But don't get preoccupied with the brokenness. Keep your eyes fixed on the coming king and his kingdom. His kingdom that is here now. Jesus said, lo, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is near. By faith we can see the inbreaking of the kingdom now. But there is a future destiny associated with that kingdom and the king that's coming that we need to keep our eyes fixed on. Like Isaiah's portrait of Zion restored when he says, the ransomed of the Lord return. You know that passage? If you don't, this is what he says about the ransomed of the Lord. They've been ransomed. They've been brought back to God, which is what's happened to us as a redeemed people. And he says this in Isaiah 35, 10 and 65, 19. With singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Do you realize that is a prophetic statement about you and me? That's not just a statement about God's people, Israel, at a particular time. This is a prophetic declaration of what's going to happen to all of God's people restored and redeemed in Christ. That we're going to come singing with everlasting joy crowning our heads. Gladness and joy will overtake us and sorrow and sighing will flee away. 
So with the full restoration of fellowship and the extinction of death and grief and suffering, we're going to enter into an experience of eternal joy. This is the big picture that is easy to lose sight of between the stop signs of life with all the junk and brokenness that's going on around us. This hope should anchor our souls, as we read earlier from Hebrews. Let it anchor you deep in Christ so that you're firm and secure whatever winds blow. And it is certain that faith now, faith now allows us to see what we can't see naturally. Hebrews 11.1. 1. We see what we can't see naturally with eyes of faith. And then we appropriate it into our lives. We can celebrate Jesus in his kingdom now. Amen? We can. We should. But we can also celebrate and look forward with expectation to the king that is coming and the full measure of his kingdom that will be released at the appointed time. Look forward to your future destiny. And by faith, lay hold of that now so that you can live in an empowered way through the Holy Spirit. So I want to end this morning with this. This then, what I've described as imperfectly as I have this morning, this is a picture in the ultimate sense of what being built together that Paul talks about in Ephesians is really all about. This is what it's unto. It's not just that we have a cool local church. This is unto the purpose of God for his people. God's intention in Christ is that we become and ultimately we will be a resurrected, redeemed, and renewed people in him. What God has set in motion, hell cannot stop. Even our own brokenness can't stop. It can affect our experiential uh, apprehension of it in life, but it can't stop the purpose of God. A people belonging to God, a people with whom God is dwelling. Did you notice in that passage from Revelation? It says, now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what God's wanted from the very beginning. If you go back to the future and look at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, that's exactly what's there. He created human beings to be in relationship with him in a place of intimacy, absent all the stuff that subsequently came and infected that relationship and broke it because of sin. And not only has he got us back to that, he's taking us beyond it. Our destiny is greater than the experience that Adam and Eve had in the garden in the story that's described for us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because of what Jesus has done. Think about that one this morning. I mean, that's, you know, we all do respect to the Super Bowl and I'll be there watching the Patriots. It can't hold a candle to what I've just said. That's our promise in Christ. 
And maybe there's a little section of heaven set aside for the patriots where they can play. I don't know. All right, don't start throwing things. I was just joking, by the way. That's not, you know. So because of all that's true, let me end this series where I started with Ephesians 2, 21, 22. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, you too, hear that personally this morning, not just collectively, it's true of us as a people, it's true of you personally. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's be that kind of building. Let's be that kind of dwelling. Let's be that temple that rises in the Lord. And it means by faith, we work together with God in the building process that he's undertaken. Amen? Let's stand.